Welcome to Celebration Church Online. We are so glad that you've joined us. We want you to share this broadcast with as many people as you can. We believe that it will bless and encourage us all in this season. Remember to continue reaching out to your loved ones. Stay connected with each other, especially with your cell family. The Bible gives us a pattern to look out for one another. Let's speak His word and His strength will carry us through. Good morning. I am looking forward to carrying on where we started last week in a message that, quite frankly, has stirred a little bit of uh, controversy. Some of you reacted, and I'm glad to do that, because I think truth must be put in the forefront. And if our preaching doesn't cause us to look at ourselves, if it doesn't cause us to look into the mirror of God's Word and see a reflection that may not be ourselves, we have a tendency to get complacent. And uh, so last week, I raised a few theological questions, some centered around the doctrine that is known as the once saved, always saved doctrine. Uh, This message has been so well taught in our nation, in Zimbabwe in particular, that some believers have a default to certain scriptures that they have hung on to for years. Now, you may be thinking, Why would our pastor not just leave this topic alone? After all, it's such a controversial subject. Well, the truth be known, this is of such a crucial nature. This doctrine is such a critical doctrine. And one of the reasons I believe that we have seen uh, a lack of revival and a lack of real change in the nation of Zimbabwe and around the world is because the church at large has been duped into a powerless position. And part of it is this erroneous teaching. And if we leave it unchecked, it's going to influence the eternal destiny of millions of souls. Quite frankly, both sides of this issue can't be right. And if the once saved, always saved crowd is wrong, and I believe they are, then there could be millions who are going to hell because they trusted in a message of false security while they were willfully living in sin. You see, the consequences are eternal. Matthew 10, 34 through 39. This is a perfect scripture Jesus gave us. It's a parable. He says, think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. For I am come to set A man at variance against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foes shall be they of his own household. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross and followeth me is not worthy of me. And he that findeth his life shall lose it. And he that loses his life for my sake shall find it. You see... Just before Jesus made this statement, he'd warned his disciples that if they were ashamed of him, and if they were ashamed of his words, then he would be ashamed of them. I believe this is in the Bible because Jesus knew that there would be a demonic push that would drive an agenda of political correctness and for a false unity to come into the church. This is creeping into our churches today where there are many pastors and denominations that have been seduced 
to keep quiet on certain things in order to keep unity, even if it's a false unity in the denomination or unity between movements or unity in a greater ecumenical type of situation. But in truth, it is just being ashamed of what Jesus said. You see, here's what's amazing to me. False unity always puts pressure on those who have the truth. They're the ones who are asked to sweep their convictions under the carpet. They're the ones who are asked to do so, so that they don't offend those who are in error. John 17, Jesus prayed this. He says, that they may all be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, so that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. Many people preach this as, hey, Jesus just wants us to be one at all costs. But Jesus prayed that we would be one in the same way he and his Father are one. Do you think that Jesus has a doctrinal difference with his Father? Especially about an issue that can affect the eternal destiny of millions of people? Amos 3.3 warns us, it says, Can two walk together except to be agreed? 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 10 says, Now I beseech you, brethren, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you speak the same thing, that there be no divisions amongst you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Notice, he told this church with no divisions to speak the same things. He didn't tell them to neglect or throw away essential truths in order to keep unity amongst them? No, he said, speak the same thing. Jesus' words are more important than peace in the household. We cannot love anyone in this spiritual house more than we love Jesus. And we cannot separate Jesus from his words. False unity will never work in the body of Christ and is usually more the body of Christ that wants this false unity is usually more concerned with making a name for itself and having big meetings together for God rather than speaking the truth in love. Many times there's more of a burden for reputation than for lost and dying souls. We've been focused on making a glamorous way to God. More focused on making it look good than be good or doing things God's way. Think about the Tower of Babel. It seems to be man's weakness. We, we all want to be unified at all costs. And God himself will come against that. 1 John 1, 1.8 says this, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. 1 John 3, verses 8 and 9 goes on to say, He that commits sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose was the Son of God manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever is born of God does not commit sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he's born of God. Are these scriptures contradicting each other? One says that we all sin, and everybody sins. The other one says, well, if you sin, you're of the devil. Which is this? Or is there something else that we need to understand? Those of us who know and we love the Word of God, we understand that God never can contradict Himself. He never contradicts Himself in His Word. In, other, uh, in order for you and I to understand that, we need to uh, 
Look at these two scriptures, and we'll see that they actually flow together. But we need to look at them through the eyes of the original Greek language to see what the Holy Spirit was really saying when he inspired the Apostle John to write this letter. You see, Greek in the time of the Bible had three basic verb, verb tenses. And back then, and even today, to some degree, they were clearly understood. There was the present tense, the perfect tense, and the aorist tense, A-O-R-I-S-T, aorist tense. Present tense usually, usually denotes a linear action, which is continuous or ongoing. It's an, a continuous or ongoing action that usually takes place in the present. Perfect tense indicates an action that generally happened in the past with results continuing into the present. And the aorist tense usually denotes punctiliar action. It's usually an action that occurs at some point in time. Uh, the aorist tense denotes the fact of an action, the fact of it. It also refers to the completion of an action without any reference to the length of the action. Uh, Nathan Hand has the parsing guide to the New Testament Greek, and that's really his definition. Now, with these definitions in mind, when we read 1 John chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, we discover that the word committeth and commit in verse 9 are in the present tense. They're present tense verbs. So what the Lord is really saying is that he that committeth sin, that is, continuously, ongoing, and presently, is of the devil. Now, doesn't that help us to understand how the word of God flows together? Another example is found in 1 John 2, in verse 1. He says, My little children, these things write I unto you that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Well, the word sin in the first part of that sentence is a present tense Greek verb, while the word sin in the second sentence is in the aorist tense. So the, little, the literal translation might read like this. My little children, these things I write unto you that you sin not. That it means in a continuous and ongoing manner that it's still taking place in the present time. And if any man does sin, an action that took place in the past and is not ongoing, know this, that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. You see, once we discover the Greek tenses of the verb, it doesn't change the word of God, but rather it gives us a better understanding. And it helps clear up some of these so-called seeming contradictions. You know, what we see throughout all of these verses is that sin should be the exception rather than the rule for the life of the believer. Romans 6, verse 14 says, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. I want to spend a little bit more time on the aspect today uh, that we've been talking about to add some clarification and, and to try to dismantle some of the arguments that have been erected regarding the doctrine of once saved, always saved. This doctrine has crept steadily and stealthily into the church, all churches. One of the scriptures that advocates the doctrine or do advocates of the doctrine of once saved, always saved, that what they use to prove their point 
or try to prove their point, is found in the Gospel of John. John chapter 6, verses 37 through 39, it says, All that the Father giveth me shall come unto me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is my Father's will, which has sent me, that of all which he has given me, I should lose none, but should raise it up again at the last day. Whew. That word cometh in the 37th verse is a present tense Greek verb. So the essence of what should be read, of the verse should read this. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me continuously, ongoingly, and presently, I will no way cast out. It's not a one-time event. It's a relationship. You see, this helps us to reconcile other passages. And without this, the understanding would seem to contradict. For example, John 8, verses, 3 through 30, uh, verses 31 and 32 says, Then Jesus said to those Jews which believed on him, If you continue in my word, then you're my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Can you see? There's a condition there. If you continue my word, if you have an ongoing relationship, that verb speaks of presently. If stay in here, Colossians 1:21 says, "And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death, to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight, if you continue in the faith." grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which you have heard, and which was preached unto every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. You see, that word if, <laughs> it's a powerful word, is a conditional term. That means you can choose whether or not to continue in his word. You can choose to continue with God or not. If you do so, you have the benefits. If you don't, there's a consequence. Therefore, it's possible for a true believer to be moved away from the hope of the gospel, which is eternal life, and be lost forever. Yet there are many who would teach that once you are born again, you've entered into an unconditional, unchangeable state with God. This is simply not true. Look, Jesus gave a parable in Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30, that illustrates that you can be a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ and then lose everything at the judgment seat of Christ. Matthew 25, 14 through 30 says, For the kingdom of heaven is as a man traveling into a far country who called his own servants and delivered unto them his goods. And to the one he gave five talents, to another two and to another one to every man according to his several ability, and straightway he took his journey. Then he that had received five talents went and traded the same and made them other five talents. And likewise, he that hath received two, he also gained two other. But he that received one went and digged in the earth and hid his Lord's money. After a long time, the Lord of those servants cometh and reckoneth with them. And so he that had received five talents came and brought other five talents, saying, Lord, thou deliverest unto me five talents. Behold, I have gained beside them five talents more. 
His Lord said unto him, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. He also, that had received two talents, came and said, Lord, thou deliverest unto me two talents. Behold, I have gained two other talents beside. His Lord said unto him, Well done, good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Then he which had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew, I knew thee. I knew that you were a man, a hard man, reaping where thou hast not sown and gathering where thou hast not strawed. And I was afraid. And I went and hid thy talent in the earth. Lo, there thou hast what is thine. His Lord answered and said unto him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knewest I reaped where I sowed not, and, you, and I gathered where I have not strawed. Thou oughtest therefore to have put my money to the exchangers. And then at my coming, I should have received mine own with usury. Take therefore the talent from him, and give it unto him that has ten talents. For unto everyone that hath shall be given, and he shall have an abundance. But from him that hath not shall be taken away, even that which he hath. And cast you this unprofitable servant into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In this parable, all three of the individuals mentioned were servants of the Lord. And all of them called Jesus their Lord. Jesus also delivered to each of them a certain portion of his goods and went back to heaven. What did Jesus give them? Well, a few weeks ago we were talking out of 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. It says, according to his divine power, he has given unto us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us unto glory and virtue. So, obviously, Jesus gave them everything that they would need to live godly and fruitful lives for him. You see, the first two things that any person must receive from Jesus are grace and faith. Without those, you can't be saved. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that, are not, that is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. To me, it's evident, and I think to all of us, it's evident that Jesus gave to each of them the important things, the things that they would need to accomplish his will. Just the fact that two of them made it into heaven proves that they were all given grace and faith. It's also clear in this parable that none of them earned what was given to them. See, it was all done by grace. But they were expected to continue in the faith and to bring forth fruit. Two of these individuals were faithful. They entered into the kingdom of heaven. After the judgment seat of Christ, we see what happened. But one of the servants was cast out of heaven. And the Bible tells us that the one who was cast out was afraid, lived his life in fear, and he hid what God had given him in the earth. 
even though he knew what his Lord expected. I don't know, maybe he was afraid of what people might say if he obeyed God. Or maybe he was just ashamed of the gospel. Possibly he was afraid to lose his job or his position in the church, maybe, if he put his faith into practice. Whatever the reasons were, when Jesus came to take account of his servants, he rebuked the one who did not do what he was supposed to do. Jesus had the angels take him that had been entrusted and take what had been trusted to him, and they cast him into outer darkness. The Bible says, where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, no matter how we try to cut this verse of scripture, the unprofitable servant did not go to heaven. The Bible teaches us without reservation that there is no darkness in heaven or no darkness in God. Nor shall there be any weeping in heaven. The truth of this parable is simple. And it's simply this, that the unprofitable servant lost everything that he had received from Jesus. And that included his salvation. Just this parable alone should cause Christians to wake up out of their spiritual slumber and tremble at the word of God. At times we all need to lift our heads out of the sands of denial. And we need to hear the whole counsel, the full counsel of God's word. Unfortunately, there are many Christians who have convinced themselves that they're okay. They think that they are hot for Jesus, even though they're living lukewarm, backslidden lifestyles. Even, Je even Jesus said this about the lukewarm church of Laodicea, that they thought that they had need of nothing, but in reality, they did not realize that they were wretched and miserable and poor, and blind, and naked. Now, I know that this message, for some of you and for some people, is like a two-by-four being struck across the side of your head. But my hope is that it'll bring us all back to our senses. You see, God is not playing around with the church. He really will vomit lukewarm believers out of his mouth. And he really will cast the unprofitable servant into hell. The time has come for the church to open her ears. It's time for us to hear what the Spirit is saying. I can guarantee that the Holy Spirit of God is not telling anyone that it's okay for them to continue in an adulterous affair or premarital sex or pornography or drunkenness or witchcraft or drug abuse or human trafficking or even in dead, lifeless religion. The Holy Spirit hates those things. The message of the Holy Spirit is get ready for the bridegroom because he's coming to take those who are ready. Don't be left behind or find yourself shut out of the wedding feast. The door will be shut very soon. Look for him, love him, and you'll be with him. See, God does not say things he doesn't mean. And he doesn't contradict himself. The sobering truth is that the lukewarm Christians and the backslidden prodigals will not go to heaven if they do not repent and return to the Heavenly Father with all their heart. Repentance is the key. 
And it simply means to admit the sin and quit the sin. I think to say it another way is to confess it and forsake it. Any believer who wants to be declared a liar by the Father has to leave the foreign soil of a, of a sinful lifestyle and return to his Father's house. You can't live in a foreign land. You can't live in the foreign lifestyle of sinfulness and have the blessings of your Father's house. You see, this covenant is a conditional covenant. And it's conditional for each and every one of us. Therefore, do not let anyone deceive you with vain and empty words. Let's just look at another part of John chapter 6. Uh, sometimes people, this may be a question in your mind. Verse 39, it says, And this is the Father's will which has sent me, that of all which he has given to me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up on the last day. Now, some may say, well, see, Jesus said, all which he has given him, I will lose nothing. But the problem with that kind of thinking is this. Jesus used a different word than I will. He, said, he used the word should, not will. Had Jesus used the word will, then there would be no room for discussion. But when he used the word should, he used a term that reveals he could lose some. So the phrase, I should lose nothing, is not a sufficient argument to prove unconditional security. In addition to that, we have to remember that the scriptures have to agree. They have to flow together. They never contradict each other. I think we can see this in another example where should is used. It's a, it's a beloved verse that we all know. And it's John 3.16. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The American Standard Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The New King James Version says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. All these versions say should not perish. It doesn't say shall not perish in any of the versions of the Bible. And there's a reason for that. Let me explain. If I was a physician, a doctor, and you came to me with a deadly disease, and I told you without a doubt that you shall not perish, whether you take the medication or not, then you would not be too serious about the remedy that I prescribed. On the other hand, if I were to tell you that you should not perish, then I am clearly saying that there's a possibility that you could perish. Surely you would take my words of instruction more seriously. I think this describes the two different mentalities that we're facing in the church at large, not only in Zimbabwe, but throughout the world. Should, shall. The word should is a conditional term, whereas the words shall or will are unconditional, in which case they are misused in John 3.16 by some well-meaning people. Even the New International Version put the word shall in place of should. This is an error. It's an error in translation. This very well-known verse of Scripture cannot be used to teach unconditional eternal security. Just the phrase 
should not perish reveals to us that there is more to walking with Jesus than simply believing. Now, this does not slight the truth that salvation comes by grace through faith. But rather, it reveals that Christianity is an ongoing relationship with our Creator that can be destroyed forever by our choices. You see, it's not a one-time transaction. Some people just want fire insurance. What they want to do is they want to walk an altar. They want to say, yeah, I gave my life to Jesus, but then I want to just live however I want to live. They see no correlation between the relationship and the action or the transaction. You see, if we do believe in Jesus, then we should not perish. We should not perish. But the sad truth is that there are many who, for one reason or another, drift away from God. And they go back to their former lives. They go back to their former loves. The things that the love of this world. Now, even if a believer does fall away from God, they can come back to the Lord. But there has to be godly sorrow and true repentance. And if there is not genuine repentance, then the word of God tells us that the unrepentant sinner will perish. Let me give you another example. Think of a woman or a man who is having an adulterous affair and the spouse, the, the, their spouse finds out. The unfaithful partner's choices have seriously damaged the relationship. And even the word of God allows the innocent spouse to separate from the unfaithful spouse forever. Now, the innocent spouse can choose to forgive the unfaithful partner and allow the relationship to be restored on the condition that the faith or the unfaithful partner truly repents and is willing. But if the unbelieving partner keeps on sinning against the faithful partner, the relationship will end permanently, even though the believing partner may still love the offending partner. You see, in the same way, God will forgive and show great mercy to the humble, the repentant one. But the person who obstinately continues in a habitual lifestyle of sin will be rejected and cast out of heaven at the judgment seat of Christ. Again, this is nothing more than a reference to the truth we just looked at in the parable of the talents. Let me just close with one last passage of Scripture and then a few more to support it. This is frequently quoted in an attempt to validate the belief of once saved, always saved. And it's, it's found in the, the Gospel of John, the 10th chapter, the 27th through 29th verse. He says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them to me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. Now, most of the time, it's only verses 28 and 29 that are used to attempt to prove once saved, always saved. But to do that is to take the verses out of context. Because the most important verse is here in 20, verse 27. Verse 27 is where Jesus told us who would never perish. Who would never be plucked out of the Father's hand. He said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. And they follow me. You see, in this scripture, the word hear and the word follow 
are both, again, that present tense Greek verb. Which means that this verse should really read like this. My sheep hear my voice. That is continuously, ongoing, and presently. And I know them. And they follow me continuously, ongoing, and right now in the present. Now that makes a lot of difference. So those who get eternal life are those who are hearing his voice and are following him continuously and presently right now, ongoingly. It's not an action or a transaction. It's a relationship. Do you remember in Matthew 24, verse 13? Jesus said, but he that endures to the end, the same shall be saved. So we have to see that salvation is reserved for those who endure to the end. It's for those who abide or remain in the vine. If we want to follow Jesus, no man can pluck us out of his hand if we're walking and abiding with him. <laughs> Praise be to God. But notwithstanding, there are those who can say, or there's those who say that not even the individual can remove himself or herself from the hand of God. Well, if that were true, and it's not, then there would be no need for the many warnings throughout the Bible about falling away or departing from God. Let me give you a few. Hebrews 3, verses 12 through 14 says, Take heed, brethren, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of disbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it's called today, lest any of you being hardened through the deceitfulness of sin, for you have become or have been made partakers of Christ, if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. Whew. I think you should pay close attention to every word of this passage. Words like brethren and departing make it really difficult to miss this as a message. to the un It's not just a message to the unsaved or to conclude that it's only for the Jews. In fact, the words we and if we are used. This chisels it, this chisels it in stone because the writer was including himself. Man, it's hard to miss the obvious point that's in this verse or in these verses. We can depart from the faith. We can miss the mark. We can fail of the grace of God. 1 Timothy 4 verse 1 says, and it's another one of those warnings that could not be made clearer. He says, now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and the doctrines of devils. I think it's straightforward. I don't think I even need to preach that. It's plain. So in conclusion, if it's impossible for a born-again believer to depart from God and to be lost, as many claim and teach, then why would there be such strong exhortations to the believer not to let it happen? You see, simple common sense lets us know that a person cannot depart from the faith that they have never possessed. To be sure of this, I looked up that definition of faith in Strong's Greek Dictionary, number 4102, and it's defined as the saving faith by which a person is born again. It's painfully clear in both of these passages of Scripture that any Christian can choose to depart from the living God and go back into sin, thereby taking themselves out of the hand of God. No man can take you out, but you can take yourself out. 
You see, God does not contradict himself. The word of God does not contradict itself. It is for this reason that we must consider what the scriptures say in regard to unconditional eternal security. You see, there's been a twisting of the scriptures in the word, in the world. And scripture has been taken out of context in an attempt to justify ongoing sin in the life of a believer. A lot of believers that don't want to live a holy and a pure life. So we twist the scriptures to say, hey, that was for a different age, different era. And this has plagued the church, especially here in the nation of Zimbabwe. Here we are boasting of 80% Christian community. And yet we're living like there's no judgment for sin. We, live, we, we kind of live as if our sinfulness will be overlooked and we can do whatever we want to. That we're all going to go to heaven. Anybody who dies, oh, we'll see him in heaven. We treat every funeral like everyone that dies is going to be in heaven. I think it is time for each of us to look at our own lives and see whether we are in the faith or not. Are we living for God or not? It is time for me and for the body of Christ to take stock and to help those who are weighed down with sins and weights that are besetting them. We help to help them get free. We can snatch people from the fires of hell. There is a redemption that God can do through our lives if we're willing to reach out and save those who are perishing. Many who once knew God, who once walked in the light, but today are they putting their trust in a false safety net. Can I just say this? Recently, in the past month or so, there have been so many people that have died. Some of COVID, most of it's not COVID, most of it's other reasons. But it's almost like we have a cliche that, oh, well, we'll see you in heaven. Rest in peace. There is no peace for the sinner. There is no heaven for those without Christ. There's a fearful looking towards hell. Now, this is not a popular doctrine these days because we just make light of what Jesus said so often. My concern is for the church. My concern is for you. God's given me a, a charge. And my concern is for my own life. The Bible says, don't become weary in doing well. The Bible exhorts us to study and to check ourselves out, to examine ourselves, to see if we're going to be in the faith or not. Am I in the faith? Are you in the faith? Are we living faithful lives? I have to say that there's times that I say, God, help me. I think I've come short. I want to repent. But I also want our whole church to repent. I want us to look very carefully at what it means to be holy. I think as a nation, we need to repent. I can't tell you how many times I speak to business people who God's given great ideas to them. Their ideas get stolen by so-called brothers. We steal money from each other. We lie to one another. We cheat. We have people that are professing Christians and they're putting together plots and plans that are destructive for their brothers and sisters. We have politicians that call themselves Christians and yet look at the disgraceful way they run the nation today. Perhaps the Holy Spirit's speaking to your heart. Maybe you're convicted. There's a number on the screen there. Sometimes we need help to walk through these things. We need to be snatched out of the fire. We need help to get through. I know this, that without fellowship, without my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, I'll deceive myself. I'll lie to myself. I need people to speak into my life. I need people to encourage me. I need people to 
hold me accountable. Maybe you should call that number. Speak to someone. Speak, ask for a counselor or a pastor. Or maybe you need some professional counseling. Or maybe you just need to repent. Whatever it is, I want you to know that we here at the church, me as a pastor and our staff love you. Our desire isn't to condemn anybody, but to have you live a holy and a pure life and that we would all be one and we'd all find ourselves with Jesus as his bride. Let me pray for you. Father, I pray for each and every member of our church, everybody, everybody under the sound of my voice. Lord, these are challenging days that we live in. There are doctrines of devils. There are enticing words of men's wisdom. There are philosophies of men that are destroying the lives of people. Father, I ask that you would help me to not only preach this gospel, but to live by it. I'm asking that you would help my heart to return to its first love. That I would not be found wanting. That I would, like the Apostle Paul said, find myself preaching to others and myself being a castaway. Father, I don't desire that. I desire to be true to your gospel, true to your word, and to be a man of God. Forgive me for my shortcomings, even in leading the body of Christ. But Father, more importantly, help us all to come to our senses, wake up out of our slumber, and prepare ourselves for the return of Jesus Christ. I love you. God bless you. We'll see you again next week. Thank you for joining us online. We hope and trust that you've been blessed by this service. Stay connected with us through our social media platforms, Facebook and WhatsApp. As we go, stay safe, stay blessed, stay connected.